chapter 3. We will pick up where we left off. We left off with the journey of Moses to Midian. You remember he fled from Egypt after uh, being essentially chased out by Pharaoh after he killed an Egyptian servant protecting a Jewish slave, and the Jewish slave um, was no help to him in his cover-up. And so he leaves from Egypt and goes to Midian, not too terribly far away, but up into uh, Herd's land and, um, where he becomes a shepherd of the flocks. Now, do you remember back to Genesis what the Egyptians thought of people who kept the flocks? So he goes from being a, a prince of Egypt of sorts now to a keeper of the flocks who are looked at um, in a very lowly way by the Egyptians. He settles in Midian and he marries a local girl um, and then starts to work for her father and spends some 40 years there. So keep that time frame in mind. Um, he's going to be 80 years old when he comes back from Midian. Um, sometimes we think these things happen at quick speed and um, we think of him as uh, you know, a relative youngster, but he was 80 um, when he went back to Egypt. Now, sometimes it's difficult for me to imagine how this could be so, but then I, I think of Glenn Timmons and think he could absolutely lead the Israelites. There's no question in my mind, and he's 10 years older, so 13 years older. So, um, you know, with God's uh, great strength and the lives they lived then compared to the stuff we have now, um, it shouldn't be too hard for us to imagine, but of course, the, the sovereign, supernatural hand of God upon his servants, and God is fond of using people that everyone else would think of as frail to emphasize his own power. So here we are, Moses tending the flocks, um, and we have God meeting him. I, you might also notice a bit of a parallel, not planned by me, of course, but we study Matthew in the morning, and we see the inauguration of Jesus into his earthly ministry, and here we have Moses being inaugurated into his uh, public ministry um, by this calling, the special calling. Here, as I read God's holy word, the first 12 verses of Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, 
but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's bow together. So I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for this account of your calling your servant Moses. Lord, this stands as such an important part of the story of your unfolding redemption in the Old Testament told to us. I pray that we would understand um, some of the details maybe in ways we haven't before. Help us also to draw some parallels and connections with how you work with us, your people today. Though none of us uh, claim to be a Moses, we do recognize you are still the same God and you uh, personally care for each of us. Uh, You meet us in special ways. You have revealed yourself through your son ultimately and the testimony of your word, the active ministry of your spirit. Help us to be ready for that in our own lives and help us uh, to be ready to listen and uh, to reverently obey. In Jesus' name, amen. How have you found your direction from God in your life? Um, What's brought you to this point? Think of the different big decisions you've had to make along the way as an individual, maybe as families. You know, how was it that you determined what God's will was for you? Um, Now, I'm not going to make the leap and say you should wait for a burning bush incident. I am going to say, though, that God uses revelation uh, to guide us. And we have the standing revelation of his word in our time. Um, We sometimes underestimate that, though. I've just said that he doesn't talk to us in a burning bush. I would suggest what he's given us is better. It's the finished word of God. It's the full counsel of God. Sometimes we say, you know, if God would talk to me in a burning bush, he's done better than that. He's spoken to us in his son, and then he's given us his testimony. So I am going to draw some parallels over the course of this message um, for us to realize there is a dynamic way in which God directs us in our lives. This is an amazing story of God's direction in Moses' life. But I would suggest it's not altogether different how we might expect God to communicate with us, Uh, especially now that we have the full counsel of his word, we have the ministry of the spirit in a refreshed way, in an indwelling way, we have the counsel of other believers to, to discuss what plans we might make, how we might make the decisions that come our way. So be thinking of that as we go over this rather familiar story. I know I can think of some key moments in my own life when it seemed like there was some clear direction from God, not like super loud, but looking ba- it's almost like looking back, I see it as more clear than I did at the moment. But I did recognize it at the moment. I remember when I was in my teens, my young teens, um, about 13 or 14, when I first really clearly heard the gospel. Um, I've told you that story before, but I heard it at a backyard Bible club. I, I always believed in Jesus and had a reverence for God. I was, grew up Roman Catholic. I was at church every week. And I believed in God, for sure, but I was mostly really scared of him. And when I heard how I could be right with him, very clearly displayed, I believed it. Um, Sometimes I think I believed it before, I just didn't have anyone really assuring me about what I thought of Christ. Whatever the case, I remember that being a very distinct moment, because it caused me, uh, they followed up with me and such, and I had to talk to my parents about it, and it created some uh, antagonism with my dad, because he took it as an insult that now I had become a Christian, as if, he was, as if I wasn't before. So there was clear, a moment of choice there for me between 13 to 15, like what direction would I go for discipleship? Because I had friends like Nathan's family who would invite me to their church where they did open the Bible on a regular basis, and there were people there that took interest in helping me grow, but I didn't want to be disrespectful either. But there's a period of time there where I was just convinced the Lord was leading me in that direction, that I had to go that way and yet somehow be respectful to what my parents wanted for me too. 
So that was, you know, 13 or 14. But then it took several years before I was even really allowed to go to that church regularly. I could only go to the evening service for a while, had to still go to Catholic church in the morning. About my junior year of high school, so three years or four years passed, which I know is not 40 years like Moses, but when you're a teenager and you really want to, you know, pursue or grow and you have a hard time um, seeing it act- active and then you're struggling with all the temptations that are coming at you when you're a teenager, you don't really have people around you to encourage you. And it's only when I went to that church that I feel like anybody was in my, in my, on my, in my corner, if you will. And so when I was, uh, about time I was a junior, when I was driving, then I, would start, I went there more fully. Got more discipleship, more understanding of the Word. I started getting an encouragement to teach the Word, but I barely really knew it well. I grew up hearing it in the Catholic Church, like excerpts of it, but I didn't know how the whole story went together at all. And I knew Nathan and other people that I met, they all, my friends, they all really knew it because they grew up in it. And I went to the youth pastor and said, I think I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do this with my life. I'm supposed to tell other people this because I felt kind of gypped that I was in church every week, but they didn't tell me the clear gospel. So I didn't want anyone to not know the gospel clearly. It's still my passion. For all the complexities that I may like to talk about, that's still what I really care about. You know, when I'm dead and gone, I hope someone says, he was kind of a jerk, but I knew what the gospel was from him. You know what I mean? Like, you'll remember that's something you got clearly. And I felt like that was a compelling, burning, this is what I should do. And I remember my youth pastor then pointing me to go to Moody, um, which I didn't even know what Moody was. He just thought it was a school that was loose enough that I wouldn't get kicked out of it. That's how he put it. He thought the other ones that they were sending people to, I wouldn't have lasted a year, which is probably true. Then he sent Nathan to kind of keep an eye on me, I think. I don't know. Um, but those were pivotal moments, but they happened over years. Like, they weren't these burning bush moments. They were like one moment here, and then another moment later, and then this time span. Now, it was 10 years from the time I think the Lord was calling me, maybe 12 years, before I got here to Redeemer and kind of settled in more to a pastoral ministry. Again, that's not a big, long period of time, and I was young when it happened, but when you're living it, it feels like a long time. And there were many times along the way I wondered if I was doing what I should be doing. And there wasn't always a clear, yes, you are doing what you should be doing. In fact, there were things that would make me doubt it along the way. So that's the normal experience. And when we read this, realize 40 years from the time he left Egypt, thinking that he was supposed to be called by God to do something special, he sticks up for a Jewish person with the Egyptians and gets more or less run out by Pharaoh and the Jews. So he has to be wondering, what is this? And then 40 more years go by, and now this episode where God comes and meets him. Here's the proposition for this message, and I think this passage teaches us. Before God sends Moses to do his delivering work, he calls him into his presence. That's the starting point for all service of God. And I don't mean just the culminating moment of the burning bush. I mean the whole process of bringing Moses to a place where when the bush revelation happens, Moses is ready for it. It's, it's not just the moment, it's the build-up to it. Just like Jesus, for 30 years, lived in Nazareth preparing. And at the moment it's time for his baptism, he's readied for it. So I'm saying to you that life will have mostly normal, mundane stuff, and there will be some moments, but the moments won't be in total vacuums. They will come with preparation. You won't always recognize it until you look back at it. But before God sends Moses to do this great work we all know about, where he leads the the Israelites from the Egyptians, he first prepares Moses and then calls him into his presence so that Moses knows who God is that he's serving. He, He has no mistake about who's calling him. That's the starting point. And that's the starting point for all of us in our lives. 
Know who God is. He's called you into his presence. You're in his presence now even, but you are all the time in him. He's moving your life and crafting your life, and he's calling you to himself so that you are readied for the things that he has for you to do. You don't have to do some special retreat for this. You don't have to go into a monastery. You don't have to wait for a revival to happen or this or this, these, this event or this experience. Um, we're to go through the, the callings that God has for us in our life, the normal everyday things we do. These are divine appointments. And we can be sure that when God's timing is right, he'll be clear to us with regard to the directions we might go. Now, there's many ways we could analyze the passage. Uh, let me do it under two headings. First, let's ask and answer the question a bit. What does God reveal about himself in this, mo- in this meeting with Moses? What does God reveal about his character? What can we learn about God in this meeting? That's the first point. The second point that'll be practical application, you might say, to ourselves, how does Moses' response inform us? What do we know about God's character, point one? Point two, how does Moses' response maybe give us some guidance or ideas about how we should live out our life before the Lord? Okay, with that in mind, let's go to the first point. What does God reveal about himself? Well, the very first thing we learn, and I've been alluding to it as I've been speaking now, we know that God's timing is his own timing and it's perfect. Um, And when I say that, you know I've said this to you before, I'm saying it because I'm guessing like you or like me, his timing isn't like what we like all the time. In fact, it's usually never the speed we prefer it. So by telling you this, I'm reminding you there's no mistakes in the timing. It's perfect. He knows what he's doing with this. And even if you feel like you're fidgeting or you're struggling or things aren't happening as fast as they are, they're happening too fast, that's in God's sovereign hand. But typically, we think things should happen faster than they do. That's typical. Sometimes it just rolls quickly. If you look at the passage, there's some, some points to make. seems like Uh, This is a long time, 40 years now. It says in verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he's led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which scholars believe is Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly where it is. Um, And there's probably good reasons God has not allowed us to know where Mount Sinai is exactly. But I want you to notice the mundaneness of Moses' life for all these years. I know several of you in this church have done the same job for a long time. Not a lot of you have had the same job for 40 years. And the job he has is keeping a flock for 40 years. And so all this time, talk about normalcy every day and difficulty every day, a tough job to say the least. I mean, physically, Moses, even at 80, had to be quite a strong specimen of a person to be able to keep flocks like this for so long. So here he is living out his life in the normal everyday uh, duties and tasks that he has. In verse 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This comes out of nowhere to Moses, but this is the perfect timing of God. Now was the time in God's plan of redemption to intervene and fulfill what he had promised to Joseph and to Jacob before him, that he would come after a time and he would free the people of Israel. In fact, the prompter in time and space is in verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Now, do you remember when we first read this? It was 40 years before that he saw it. Remember, God said that he heard it. Uh, He heard the cry in the chapter before. And now 40 years have gone by and he's mentioning, yeah, I've heard it. 
Now, wouldn't you think he heard it the first time? It should be like right away then, Lord. You should do something, right? He works in his own time. He's heard it. He knows it. He has seen it. He knows it. Remember those key words? But yet 40 years. Now it seems immediate the way we read it. He's seen the afflictions. Now it says in verse 8, I have come down now, come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to do a good and broad land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, money of, uh, a land of much stuff. So he notices and it comes to his attention 40 years before. Now he's coming to actually start the intervention. Verse 9, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. I just wonder what Moses was thinking. I said, Lord, yes, I, that was true 40 years ago. And now the Lord's timing is perfect. That's the lesson here. The fullness of time had finally come. 430 years from the time of Joseph now to this time. I have seen, I have heard, and I know. There's Moses just tending his flocks, and God decides this is the moment, or has decided, and now it's revealed. Moses didn't go out on a pilgrimage. He was doing his work. And that's when God meets us most often, when we're, doing, we're taking care of our God-given responsibilities. You know, sometimes when people say, you know, I'm going to take some time off to go figure out the, the, God's will, and sometimes it's an excuse to not do their responsibilities. Uh, we're to do our responsibilities, and God has no trouble in the midst of all those uh, to direct us. Do your daily work. God will find you. And that's what happens with Moses. And we can't force God's timetable. Uh, so being dutiful about our responsibilities is always the right place to find God's will. We should remember that. Um, I've talked to many people who tell me, um, you know, they're trying to discern God's will about ministry, and they're, they have a family, and they're, they're just trying to discern this. And um, sometimes it'll be, I've noticed this happens from time to time, they're having a problem with whatever job they have. Well, maybe God's calling me to ministry because you're having a problem with the job you have. Is if this job, sometimes I take it as an insult, like, it's not working out your job, I'll go be a pastor. That would be a lot easier. Maybe that's true. But what I'd like to say is, I don't know if God's calling you to that, but I do know God wants you to get your job right now. He wants to take care of your family. That's what he wants you to do. I don't care what it is. That's what you should do right now. Because he's not going to call someone who's lazy if that's the real reason. That may not be. I'm just saying I hear enough of that kind of thing. Like, I'm not going to do this lowly job because I think God has something else for me. No, get doing the job. And God will find you, and he'll take care of you. Now, what else does he reveal? The holiness of God is on full display. God is holy. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. The angel of the Lord here, I think it's right, this is God himself now speaking through this bush that's on fire. Um, sometimes the angel of the Lord is a theophany, or it's, a, it's God himself. Sometimes it's a Christophany. It's the second person of the Trinity. Here we should, I believe, take it as God speaking through this bush with the fire in it that does not consume the bush. It's supernatural. No question this is the case when Moses, he doesn't mistake that something is happening. In fact, he looked, verse 2, behold, the bush was burning yet it was not consumed. In arid temperatures like this, there was, there was uh, the phenomena of things combusting because it got so hot and dry. Or there could be even a dry lightning strike. I remember in California when Nico went to school there, um, that fall, like there was constant fires 
of the brush that would get struck by lightning or just anything would start the stuff on fire. So that wasn't so un unusual. What's unusual is it wasn't burning it up. It would be rather rapid, and yet it wasn't, and it's intensely burning, and a voice comes from it. So when Moses sees this, he knows something's not right, and he says, I will turn aside to see it. So he's trying to see it, and he's looking at it. Uh, why is the bush not burned? So he's rightly in a place of fear now. He knows something is divinely happening or appointed, it seems. And he can't even really look straight at the bush, it seems. And he was afraid when he realized who was talking to him. Then it says, verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. It's a phrase we've heard before. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. So he's giving him a revelation that he needs. We, we don't know how to approach God unless God tells us who he is. And so God's telling him, hey, this is who I am, so take off your sandals. Um, you are in a holy place in my presence. So God is personal and caring here to give this information, but he is a consuming fire. He's holy. Um, and holiness has to do with otherness. Um, we're not the same. And you can't come into my space uninvited or as you are. He is different. He is separate. And really, this is one of the most fundamental distinctions between God and man. He is holy, and we are not. It's the so-called crea creator-creature distinction. He is far above us. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's immutable. He's omnipotent. And all of these things are wrapped up in who he is as the holy God, holy other than us. His being and his nature are other than ours. He's morally other as well. And that's a terrifying holiness that can instantly consume us. And by God's grace, he says, keep your ground, keep, keep where you are, take your shoes off. Back to verse four. He called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. I was thinking back to when we've seen this before, and Moses would remember this too, of course. Back when he, he showed himself to Abraham one of the times, in Genesis 22, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, remember that? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Later in Genesis 46, God spoke to Israel or Jacob in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, Moses said, here I am. Verse 5, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. When we come into the presence of God, we should do so with great reverence. That'll be a point we come to about our response because of who he is. He wants us to come, but he wants us to come understanding who he is. He's being honest about who he is, and that will, that will dictate how we then approach and how we ask of God. And then he ties himself to the God of the patriarchs all the way to this point. Now, what else do we learn? We also learn not only is he holy, uh, but also he is apt to commission human vessels to do his work, which doesn't, for the holiness of God, the otherness of God, to choose us to do anything, why would he do this? Well, part of that sets up further how he is other and powerful. It says in verse 9, now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which Egyptians oppress them. And listen to verse 10. Imagine if you were Moses at this point. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What? Well, hold, hold on. This, this, this changed here a second. This has gone in a direction I'm not ready for, Moses had to be thinking. In fact, I know he was thinking that. He said, 
But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Have you ever been asked to do something big that you just did not feel like you're able to do? Maybe your boss asked you, maybe your wife asked you, maybe uh, someone, uh, someone in the community asked you to do something that you might be able to do, but your first reaction is to make an excuse that in many cases, it'd be a lie just because you didn't really think about it. You just didn't, knew you didn't want to do it, so no, I can't do this. I'm busy that day, or I've got this problem going on, or I have this other thing, or I'm not equipped to do it. And so you can totally appreciate where Moses is coming from. God is speaking to him out of a burning bush. He's saying, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. I've heard the cry of my people out of Egypt, and I'm going to send you to go free them from Pharaoh. Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out. But God is pleased to use broken vessels on purpose. Uh, You know, up to that point, maybe Moses is thinking, oh, God's going to work, but then he says, I'm going to send you. God doesn't ask. He commissions. You notice that God doesn't say, hey, Moses, what do you think of this? He commissions. He sends them. This reminds me of something Paul said that will encourage all of us. In 1 Corinthians 1, he said this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Imagine you're Pharaoh, and you have the shepherd man come in. This is the Pharaoh after the one died that was after Moses. And he comes and says that God's going to free the Israelites. What does Pharaoh think of this sheep herder coming and talking to him like this. But that's exactly who God uses to do his work. Because it couldn't be this sheep herder that does it when it's all said and done. It had to be God who did it. And that's a common practice with with God that should give us all great courage and encouragement to serve him in any way he calls us. Whatever he calls you to do, he'll equip you to do it. And we'll see this. It says in verse 12, in response to Moses, but I will be with you. You all remember where God being with someone matters, right? How about the life of Joseph? You remember that? I will be with you. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis and knows that story. And the Lord was with. He knows that formula. And now God's saying, I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be the sign for you. How will Moses look upon the whole thing and realize God has been with him the whole time? This is a bit unusual if you look at it. And this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's where Sinai is. The word service here is synonymous with worship. You will worship me here. Worship is the final display of God subduing a people to himself. We'll come back to that. So he commissions Moses, a broken vessel, but he also promises to equip him and empower him. Now, let's look at the point, the second point. How should, how did Moses respond and what might we draw from this? I've alluded to some of it, but now let's take it from that angle. First of all, we see him listen and revere or reverence. Verse 4, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am. There is a certain readiness with Moses in his life. He doesn't say, 
um, like Ebenezer Scrooge when Marley appears to him. There's, this, isn't, this isn't real. Uh, there, the, he keeps giving these reasons why my rational mind says this can't be true. Moses is not in that stance. Um, as God speaks to him, he knows something is, is real about this. And here I am, he says, going about his business, but he's not shut off to God. Forty years have elapsed, but he's still ready to be God's servant. Always be ready to discern God's calling in your life. Do your normal, ordinary things, but remain sensitive to the Lord's leading in your life. How do you stay sensitive? The way to stay sensitive is to, to regularly be in the Word of God. That's, that's the way God speaks to us today. In His Holy Spirit, the, the Word of God is dynamic. It's written by the Holy Spirit, and then it's continually living and active because the Holy Spirit works upon the reader and the text itself to help us understand what it is and apply it. So to be sensitive to God's calling, you must be in God's Word. If you shut the Bible and wait for God to talk to you, you just cut off the main way he talks to you. So stay in the word. Even if you don't feel like it, read it and, and pray to ask God to help you understand it. So speaking to God, praying to God, and reading what he's spoken to us, that's how you remain, in a very simple way, sensitive. Of course, be in fellowship with other believers. Um, have them uh, pray and interact in your life too, and you for them. And in that context, a very simple faith context, um, you'll be able to have aid in understanding how God might be directing you. And even the littlest thing in your life is a big thing in your life. So don't take it as less than that. God cares about it. Um, but this is the way you hear from God. When he says to you, uh, calls your name, and you say, here I am, um, that sensitivity that Moses has is something that can be experienced in our own lives by the means I just explained. Not shutting your Bible and waiting for a voice to heaven to come, because the voice to heaven, the only thing it would say is, open your Bible. That's what the voice would probably say. Also, I want you to notice the reverence that Moses immediately uh, shows. Do not come, come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And so every indication is, of course, doesn't say Moses did it, but we know he would not have survived not doing it. And so he comes with a reverence before the Lord. Um, and he hides his face, it says in verse 6. He was afraid to look at God. He knows that God is consuming fire. Um, he cannot handle to look straight at God. We see this repeatedly. In fact, Moses is the only one, um, and that's with his backside facing God when he gets to Sinai. And Moses is the only one that's come close to this kind of thing. But he comes with great reverence. And that's how we should approach God. We should be very careful to revere God and we come into his presence. And that should obviously, I think, relate to um, our corporate worship in that we want to have a sense of reverence about it. It doesn't mean that we should act that God is wholly other and that we can't communicate or connect with, but we should come into his presence um, with carefulness because this is God who we are in the presence of. He says to us, you are my children. But when we revere our parents, even there we'll have a certain reverence, and you see that in Moses. The other thing Moses responds with is trust. He says, who am I? I who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring, this, bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. He's telling him, I'm going to be with you and I'll prove it to you in time. So Moses has to trust. By faith, Moses has to follow what God says. He's thinking this does not sound like a workable plan. That's probably what he's imagining, but he knows that's in himself. How can this be so that you would call me? 
But see, the question here is not who is Moses. The question is, who is with Moses? That's the issue that Moses has to come to understand. That's what we have to come to understand. It's not who are you and what are your capabilities. It's who's calling you to do what it is he's calling you to do. He's the one that equips as well. Connected to his trusting is his obedience. That's the final response you might say. Now, that response isn't in the text immediately. That's, we're coming to that. But if you don't mind giving you a little bit of a spoiler alert, when you think of where Moses, uh, how he progresses through this, for all the foibles Moses may have, he's an amazing, amazing person by God's grace. But just a little, a little flash in the future. When it comes down to the actual exodus, when he's going to lead the Israelites out, I love the passage because it's so weighty. As a, as a leader, you know, you doubt yourself a lot, and then if you get a lot of pushback from those who are following, it's even more difficult. And here's Moses who had that in spades. I mean, he had one of the most difficult leadership tasks one can imagine. And the text is so colorful in telling us the voices that were constantly against him. In Exodus 14, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. So they're heading to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's coming behind them, the biggest, most powerful army in the world. And here they are, a bunch of freed slaves. And they're running away from Egypt. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I wonder, you know, Moses wrote this. He probably took the top zinger that they gave him. During, there had to be hundreds of them, but this is the one that really got him. He wrote it down. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord then said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. The people are mad. God's telling them, you got to come on, move. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, do you not think that he had doubts and wonders about whether he was supposed to do it? But he did trust God. He was struggling. It was fits and starts. Uh, here, let's stop and pray and let's call the No, you don't have to pray anymore, God says. Go forward. Lift up your staff. Do what I say. And then he says further, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. This glory is going to come to me. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, his horsemen. What will Moses do? There's a lot going on. Imagine the voices. Verse 21 of Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Ultimately, he obeyed. But that was not an easy obedience and it came with a lot of pain. So finally, wrapping up the passage. What's the final aim for God leading Israel out of slavery? What's the purpose for redeeming Israel out of bondage? What is God's goal for saving Israel? You could say, what is the reason for his salvation at all? You can translate this across the board. Verse 12, he shall, his, his shall be the sign for you, this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will worship God on this mountain. There will be a moment of rest after all of this, and everyone will turn their gaze toward God and his glory, and that will be the sign that you've been saved. That'll be the result of salvation and the sign of salvation. 
And this is always true in every era. The reason why we say it, our, the mission of our church is to be a community of Christians who love to worship their God first and then to study His Word and proclaim His gospel to the world. What is the reason, though, for salvation? The reason for salvation isn't to save you from hell. That's the benefit we receive. But the real purpose is that He receive all the glory for that salvation. So that worship is central because we are a, a community of redeemed sinners who could not give God that glory volitionally unless He saved us. Proof of salvation is we want to worship Him. So when we say we're a community who loves to worship our God, we mean to say that we recognize salvation comes from God for the purpose of worship. Of course we're about the gospel. What's the purpose of the gospel? That people might worship Him. Now, I get to be saved from hell that I deserve and have abundant life. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is that God receive all the glory. That's always true. Always true. Why do we want to share the gospel with the world? So more people worship God because God deserves that worship. We should want, every, we should want the nations to rejoice. That, that's what should drive us. Sure, I don't want them to go to hell. Absolutely. What I really want, though, when I'm thinking most straight, sanctified straight, is I want them to give praise to God so that there is no, no voice that doesn't speak those words of glory to God. And eventually, it is true, all will. All will, eventually. But through the gospel, we can see that realized even now, as hearts are turned away from themselves and worship of themselves unto the place that should, who should receive the glory. I love what Lig Duncan says about this passage. This passage makes it crystal clear that the redemption of Israel out of Egypt is in order that they become worshipers of God. It's the same with us. We are saved to worship. Now, worship's a big word. It's not just formal. It's serve him and serve him in all the ways that we might. Worship has a, is an umbrella that has many things under it. And the top of the umbrella is the praise and worship as we speak the truths about God that are and sing unto him and pray unto him and all. But it, it's all of our life given into devotion to God and credit to God, glory to God alone. And what people will sometimes say, all glory to God, and they'll say something about um, what they're doing well. I appreciate that because that's what they, they understand, that anything they do well or we do well really is for God's glory. We want it to reflect that way. Certainly, that is something we could say of Moses' life. And the, the beauty of Moses' life, really compared to Joseph's, is we'll relate a lot more with some of the stuff that happens with, jo with Moses. Um, Moses, in God's sovereign care, was, was very kind to Joseph's testimony. I mean, the, that's the way the Spirit gave it for him to write. He's writing about himself a lot of these times, and so he's going to be very, very blunt about what that road looks like. But the end of the road shows that God was faithful through Moses, to bring glory to himself. And hopefully that's true of all, for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the beginning here of Moses' calling now, and you're meeting him, and the great task you're calling him to in this passage as we see this start to unfold before our very eyes. I pray, Lord, that though this uh, be an ancient testimony of something that happened many years ago, indeed 3,500 years ago, I do pray that we would see the relevance uh, today because you're still the same God. And Lord, we have so many more blessings now, this side, this side of the cross, this side of uh, these many years. And so help us to apply afresh the truths we have learned here. Pray for everyone here to find the, the tasks that they have tomorrow and this week, though they may be mundane at times and difficult there, you're calling in their life and that um, you have given, you have appointed these things and you will 
not have any trouble finding them uh, to give them direction about how they might do whatever they do next. But help us to recognize that all, every moment of our life is in your hands and all of it matters and that you care for us and even though the timetable may not be ours, yours is perfect and give us patience for this and help us, Lord, to truly trust in you so that we might obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions before I close? Uh, I won't pray again. I'll just ask you for some questions. If you don't have any, all right, we're dismissed.